politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Banner. Good afternoon and welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. I am, as you might suspect, your host, Michael Benner, and happy to be here again. The Ageless Wisdom Mystery School is heard every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time. And because we're heard around the world, streaming from kpfk.org on the Internet, I should mention that that's 20 hours universal time. And I should also mention this program is podcast, wherever you normally subscribe to your podcasts. And the most recent program streams on demand from theagelesswisdom.com. Remember the T-H-E, it's theagelesswisdom.com. My guest today in the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School is Sharon Kyle. She is the publisher and editor of the L.A. Progressive Newsletter, a roughly 12-year-old enterprise with great articles published every day. And we'll bring her on in just a few moments. Because this is a program about consciousness, about developing self-awareness, and about a moral authority known as the wisdom, which globally stands above religion and beyond politics. When we do a program like the one you're about to hear that appears to be about politics, you might say, wait a minute, I thought this is a health and spirituality show. Again, a program about consciousness and self-awareness. And, and so why are you talking about politics? Well, it's because the development of consciousness carries with it a certain moral authority. As we say in the opening of every one of these programs, the wisdom is a moral authority. In other words, as you become more conscious, more awake and more aware, your values change. Your ethics and, and morality compels you to behave in a certain way. You are no longer separate and self-centered. You are part of a global, indeed, a universal community, and nothing is separate. And so one of the distinctions we're going to talk about with Sharon Kyle this afternoon is the difference between a liberal and a progressive. Uh, I won't get into that now because I don't want to steal her thunder. She does a better job than I of explaining the distinction. We're also going to talk about a strange term, neoliberalism, which has nothing to do with being a liberal. It's one of these newspeak words that the right wing uses. Neo means new. It's a, it's a Latin prefix. Neo is new. So neoliberalism would be the new liberalism. But indeed, it's the alt-right corporatism. It's about replacing a democracy with a corporatocracy or if you will, a plutocracy or a kleptocracy, the ruling elite increasingly run things. 
the Fortune 500, you know now, is the Fortune 5. There are a handful of individuals, fewer than 100 people in the world, that have more wealth than half of the planet's people. And uh, it's not just a matter of economic inequality. It's a matter of our entire democracy, at least in the United States. The values and principles, the ideals of this bold experiment in self-rule that is at risk. But I wanted to take a few minutes at the top of the program to make a case for this really not being about politics. We're not going to talk about Republicans and Democrats. We're going to talk about individuals taking action because they feel compelled to, because there's a motivation that burns inside us that says, silence is complicity and I can't sit by and do nothing. I've got to take some action, either as a journalist or as an educator, some type of social activism outside of politics, because clearly politics is not coming to the rescue. As Gil Scott Heron used to say, there's no cavalry in a black and white B movie that's going to come over the hill and, and save us. The Democratic Party and, and Democratic establishment is not coming to the rescue. It's up to us to recognize what? Economic inequity? Yeah, it's more than that. Social inequity and racism, white supremacy and corporatism? I suppose everyone listening at one time or another has played the game Monopoly. Usually played with four people. Sometimes it lasts all afternoon or into the evening. But my question to you is, how did that game end? Indeed, how did every Monopoly game that you ever played come to a conclusion? How did you know the game was over? It was when one person had all the money and all the power. Game over. That's what's happening with the billionaire class. In the past year, during the COVID pandemic, during which millions of people lost their jobs, millions of people became food insecure, homelessness and unemployment skyrocketed, the top 1% did really well. The top 10% did better than ever. And you might think, well, so what? You know, the rich people don't cause the poor people to be poor, do they? Well, wasn't that the case in the Monopoly game? There was only so much money in the bank. And as one person gathered more money, it became easier and easier for him or her <laughs> to use that capital to corner the market on the land and to buy houses and hotels and factories and get-out-of-jail-free cards <laughs> and all that went with that game. But life works the same way. When a billionaire gets a tax break of several million dollars, he doesn't spend that money. He doesn't get a new car. Well, he might upgrade his Mercedes to a Rolls Royce. He might buy house number four or 14. He might spend some of that money, but the tens of millions of dollars 
that are accruing for billionaires during this economic collapse is being pocketed and the rich get richer. It's a plundering of the economy. It's draining resources from the economy such that it's wrong to say these people are successful. The richest men in the world did not earn that money. I know an argument can be made by a good capitalist that Jeff Bezos earned every cent of the tens of billions or hundreds of billions of dollars that he has. I'm not buying it. Not when thousands of businesses have gone bankrupt as a result and hundreds of thousands of people have lost the jobs they had with those businesses. Just like watching the neighborhood hardware store collapse 15, 20 years ago when Home Depot first started. And so something's got to change if we're going to retain a democracy and the Bill of Rights and the real freedom that we're looking for, free enterprise, as opposed to winner-take-all capitalism. And we can't depend upon Democrats in Congress or Sacramento to save us. You and I have to do it. And we have to do it because it's the moral thing to do. And that's why we need to talk about this on the program about consciousness and the moral authority to become socially active, to fight for peace and social justice, and not leave this to the shows that are clearly devoted to politics and voting. And call your congressperson in Washington and tell them to vote for this bill. That's all well and good, but that's not nearly enough. And so in a minute, I'm going to introduce my guest, Sharon Kyle, and we're going to talk about the difference between a liberal and a real progressive. Stay tuned. You're going to really like this, I think. And we'll be right back with my guest after this short break. You're listening to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK. KPFK celebrates Women and Women's History Month. Many young people think that the revolution began when they woke up. Maya Angelou, circa 1977. In the 19th century and in the 18th century, there were white American women who were involved in the struggle against slavery, who were serious. Unfortunately for us all, their names for the most part have been lost on the sands of time. Unfortunately, I feel belittled because I'm not able to tip my heart and my hat to those women who risked and sometimes lost their lives in the Underground Railroad movement. Not because they loved blacks, but because they loved truth. They loved truth more than life. And because of those women, we are all here today. Happy Women's History Month from KPFK. KPFK is listener-sponsored radio, which you can support at kpfk.org. My guest today on The Ageless Wisdom on KPFK is Sharon Kyle. Sharon is the 
publisher, uh, the co-founder, and the editor of the LA Progressive, a newsletter that just showed up in my inbox about a decade ago. I've been reading it ever since. I really like it. It has a new format. It's uh, packed full of uh, really relevant and interesting information. And I got to thinking the other day, what does it mean to be a progressive? Here we are in KPFK. We throw the term around. We used to call ourselves liberals. I guess sometimes we still do. What does it mean to be a progressive? What is a progressive agenda? And I immediately thought, well, I'm going to call Sharon Kyle. I've never talked to her before, but she's doing the L.A. Progressive, so maybe a conversation between the two of us will uh, enlighten us all on the topic. Why do we care? Sharon Kyle, welcome to the Ageless Wisdom at KPFK. Thank you so much, Michael, for inviting me, and um, it's it's a real pleasure to have this kind of talk with fellow with a fellow progressive and hopefully fellow progressive listeners. Well, thanks. I don't think I've ever had this conversation with anybody before. Yes, because I I think that the term liberal and progressive are oftentimes used interchangeably, but I'm very intentional about my understanding of progressive and progressivism and how it differs from liberalism. And for the longest time, I've tried to think of a shorthanded way of explaining it. And the best way that I could come up with is that liberals are people who have good intentions, um, who generally have no ill will or hold no feelings of animus toward different groups of people. But they're willing to allow our politicians to set policy that is basically neoliberal policy. And what I mean by that is in 1971, if you want to understand neoliberalism, it doesn't take a whole lot of investigation. And in 1971, Lewis Powell, who was an attorney, I believe he was a judge in 71, but he was not a United States Supreme Court justice. He was appointed um, ultimately by Richard Nixon to be a justice. But before he was appointed, he wrote an eight-page memo to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And in that memo, he basically laid out the neoliberalism agenda. And what that agenda was, is it was really a reaction to the civil rights victories of the 50s and 60s, to the Brown versus Board of Education, to the the uh, anti-Vietnam um, protests, to the women's movement, to the Equal Rights Amendment, and to the Voting Rights Amendment. All of those things happened in a relatively short period of time. And uh, the Lewis Powell memo set out an agenda for basically undoing those things. So, for example, today, if you look at the Voting Rights Act, it was gutted several years ago. You've heard of people being upset about Citizens United. Well, there was a plan, a 45, 50-year plan. Um, it started out with this memo. Then he was appointed to the Supreme Court. Then in 1971, Richard Nixon announced his war on drugs. And if you look at the war on drugs... There is an arc that it follows that starts around 1971. Our mass incarceration levels exploded. The United States at one time before 1971, 
um, incarcerated people, its citizens, at the same rate as every other similarly situated country, whether you were looking at England or France or any country that was similarly situated to the United States incarcerated about 100 to 115 people per 100,000. So that was a pre-war on drugs. After the war on drugs, we increased by almost 800% the number of people that are on parole, incarcerated either in prisons or jails or uh, juvenile youth. It is unheard of in human history. We say that we have 2.4 million people incarcerated, and that is true. But if you actually include people that are in jails, people that are in prisons, people that are under some other form of state control like parole, it can get as high as 8 million people. So that's when Michelle Alexander's book, um, The New Jim Crow, she talks about there are more black men imprisoned or in under some form of state control today than were enslaved in 1865. That's where those numbers come from. So the war on drugs was less about drugs per se than about incarcerating people of color. And once you're a felon, you don't get to vote anymore. That's right. That's true in many states, not all states, but in many states, uh, once you become a felon, you lose the franchise. You're no longer eligible to vote. There are, there are a lot of things. That's why uh, Michelle Alexander calls it the new Jim Crow. You cannot have access to lots of, lots of jobs. Like you can't be a barber. There are a, a long list and I don't have access to my computer because I can pull up a screen where I can tell you, uh, just give you a sampling of the things that formerly incarcerated people are no longer, um, they can't have housing in, in many states. They can't have housing in public housing. So like if a, if a grandma, a grandson is coming home, he can't stay with his grandma if she's living um, with subsidized housing. The punitiveness of it is just, it's, it's, um, it's, it is unthinkable. And for most people, um, well, I'll say for most white people, this kind of goes under the radar because the attack has been primarily on people of color. I read an article in, I think it was the Chicago Rita, and the title of it is, Everybody Smokes Marijuana, But Only Black and Brown People Get Arrested for It. And so the crimes are the same. There is just over-policing of certain communities and then a much more punitive approach when it comes to sentencing. So a white person and a black person commit the same crime, but statistically what has happened in terms of their sentencing is that the white person's sentence is a lot less than the black person. Well, I think we're all familiar with the contradiction around crack cocaine and powdered cocaine. And at first glance, you might not think of that as being a racial thing. It's more an economic thing, but it works out in a de facto way. It works out the same way. Yeah. If, if you're, you know, caught smoking crack, you go away for a lot longer than the more expensive and preferred by the affluent white society, the powdered cocaine. Somehow that's less of a crime in that form. Yes, somehow. 
So it's, it's actually not somehow. I used to think that it was somehow that's less of a crime. But there's been enough information um, that's come out about Richard Nixon to suggest that this was actually quite intentional. Um, Richard Nick- Nixon was uh, deeply held racist beliefs. And so um, this whole uh, differential between crack and powder cocaine was intentional. Uh, the, in- the intended um, victims were to be black and brown people. Yeah, well, I say some problem being sarcastic, but <laughs> yes. Let me go back to this neoliberal label because it occurs to me that it's so different from what the apparent meaning neo. I thought neo meant new, it was sort of a Latin prefix for new, but it seems like federalism ought to be about federal power, but federalism is really about states' rights and and decentralization of power. And here we have neoliberalism, which would seem to imply or suggest a new kind of liberalism, but it sounds more, not even conservative, but reactionary and and authoritarian. Yeah, so George Lakoff's, uh, George, um, no, I'm saying his name wrong, Lakoff, who is a linguistic professor at UC Berkeley, he talks a lot about the framing and how the conservative movement, one of the things that they've been brilliant at is the language that they use. The language they use oftentimes, the way that they, um, the language that they introduce into the, the lexicon means the opposite of what you would believe that it means. And so we have a populace that really doesn't have the time that it takes to delve deep into these into these issues, they'll hear a word like that and think that, oh, okay, well, that somehow means liberal. But in fact, what it what it has turned out to mean is that um, deeply rich, deep-pocketed individuals and corporations now control more of the the body politic than anything else. So over the past fifty years, with these neoliberal policies, we've had corporations. Um, let's take the media, for example. Um, there was a time before Michael Powell, Powell, who now this is a different Powell. I'm not talking about anybody that's related to Lewis Powell. I'm talking about uh, the son of Colin Powell, who headed up the FCC, um, the Federal Communications Commission, more than a decade ago. But he and those around him allowed for the deregulation of many of our communications outlets. So we have, we've got to the place now where basically six corporations control the narrative. Um, whether you're talking about cable television or, um, radio or print media and the Washington Post has been sold out. Everything is for profit and the public, uh, the public sphere is hurting. For that reason, and and we really suffer when it comes to local uh, information. During the the Katrina catastrophe, there was not adequate local news. And so many people didn't even realize the severity of the storm that was coming their way. Yeah, I've watched the the loss of the fairness doctrine as Mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. Used to be both sides had to be represented, if not equitably, at least to some degree. But uh, that's what caused right-wing hate radio to take off, was the absence of a fairness doctrine. 
Absolutely. And so when I talk about neoliberalism and the difference between being a liberal and being a progressive, progressives oppose neoliberal policies. And what we've seen in the past 50 years is it doesn't matter who controls the pre- the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branches, whether there is a, a dominance of Democrats or a domi- dominance of Republicans, that didn't matter. Neoliberalism has been supported across the board by both Republicans and Democrats. And um, you can just simply look at how the transfer of public, um, the privatization, privatization is a big neoliberal thing, um, charter schools, uh, privatization of prisons, privatization of, of public spaces. I remember during the Occupy movement, one of the great things about Occupy is the movement itself provided an opportunity for people to um, sort of have a town hall environment where there would be an exchange of ideas and eventually, you know, the mayors across the country put an end to that. And that's when it occurred to me, that, you know, when they put an end to that, that meant we had no public space. There was a time where there was a town hall a hundred years ago in these little small towns. There was a town hall and people would come out and there would be an exchange of ideas or another thing that has changed quite a bit in the past hundred, 150 years is ownership. So, the big corporations like Amazon, um, you know, we have we have the the, the tech, um, the techies who have just kind of taken over everything. We you know the Jeff Bezos and 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 the Zuckerbergs. But back 150 years ago, we didn't have these big corporations. Eighty percent of the people that lived in the United States, and now I'm talking just post-slavery because that's a whole other issue. But 80 percent of the people living in the United States worked for themselves. There were small farmers. There were mom pa owned shops. You know, there was, um, it was unusual. In fact, Abraham Lincoln made a speech about wage slavery versus chattel slavery. And people who worked for others, if they weren't in some type of internship uh, program preparing to have their own shop, if they were adults working for others, they were looked down upon. The idea was you'd have your baker shop or your shoe shop or your haberdashery or your farm or your whatever it was. Eighty percent of the people in this country ran their own stuff. But as the Industrial Revolution grew and more and more people came from Europe and, of course, we had the um, the Africans who were who, who were enslaved. As that began to change and, and the Industrial Revolution took hold. What we had was more and more wage slaves. And that's what we have today. So people don't really have agency over their own lives. And that is part of the neoliberal dream. It sounds when we compare, or it sounds when you compare liberalism to being a progressive, it sounds a little bit like the distinction of, well, I'm not a racist as opposed to, I am an anti-racist. Very much like that. I think it is akin to that, yes. Those of us who intend to hold the reins of our lives, which includes how our government sets policy. Those of us who want to hire professionals and don't do a whole lot of investigation as to how those professionals develop policy, don't weigh in in any way. 
like call themselves good people, mm-mm. it causes too much harm to society. I mean, it's, it's how we got to the place where we were with what happened to George Floyd. We are there and we have been there for hundreds of years. And other people just walk the other way and look the other way. People who aren't directly impacted. There used to be a term limousine liberal, mm-hmm. which I think goes back to the top of our discussion where you were saying liberal is, well, a well-intentioned person. They're not the enemy, but they're so neutral. And uh, uh, what shall I say, castrated, really, that they're not being active and practicing what they preach. And I don't really like the word proactive, but in an active, uh, asserting yourself, you know, and making demands and participating in the government seems to be a, a progressive as somebody who, really needs to put their money and their behavior and their activity where their mouth is. That's right. I think it was Howard Zinn that said you can't be neutral on a moving train. And so I I talk to people, I, I try to think of metaphors. There, uh, I was in a sort of an, an email dispute about whether or not we should have affirmative action. And uh, you remember in November, this past November 2020, there was an initiative on the California ballot, which failed. Um, but I was in a conversation with people who called themselves liberal, who were white, who felt that uh, we shouldn't have affirmative action. And one of these people was um, was happy and was bragging. And, and, I, and I shouldn't say that he should not have been happy, but he raised two children. His children were adults and they were very involved in the marches over the summer and they're white. And he kind of patted himself on the back. He said, I think I, I did a good job with my kids. And he was challenging me to debate with him. And I didn't want to debate with him, but I did share with him my metaphor for these neo, uh, these uh, um, limousine liberals. I talked about a small island in the South Pacific. It, the, uh, the name of the island is uh, Tuvalu. And Tuvalu has been increasingly flooded because of the melting of the polar ice caps and the changing sea levels. Now, Tuvalu is not at all a contributor to the carbon footprint. The United States, on the other hand, um, represents, we have about 5% of the Earth's population, but we contribute about 25% of the, um, that, that makes the carbon footprint harmful. Most of it comes from the United States and other wealthy countries. Here in the United States, we don't think about the people of Tuvalu. We we don't hate them. We have no animus toward them. But we have a culture. We live a life of consumables. And you just basically, you know, throw, throw away your plastics. And you live the kind of life that contributes in a major way to the harm that is done to the people in Tuvalu. And what I was trying to express to this man is because we have a culture that is hurting other people, we need not have any any animus toward those people. All we have to do is just keep living the way we've been living. And that's how it is for limousine liberals. All you have to do is just keep living the way you've been living and we'll continue to see these harms. But also, like Tuvalu, Eventually, it's going to impact everybody. You know, you can't, maybe the people in Tuvalu, they will hurt first 
But eventually, everyone is going to have to make a change. And I feel that that's the same situation in the United States as it relates to racism. And racism was sort of a way to let the neoliberals create policy that they knew that the limousine liberals would not oppose because it didn't impact them. This program is a program about consciousness. And I think so much of what you're talking about lies in the unconscious of or the unconsciousness of people in power. I had a conversation with a a close friend the other day uh, who had just retired, and in our conversation said something to me about, well, surely my success had nothing to do with white supremacy. And it's a white guy. And I said, well, of course it did. He said, how do you figure? And I said, white supremacy has nothing to do with you asserting personally your supremacy over black people you run into or other people of color. It's an accumulation of the benefits that naturally accrue in a society that has been run by the white race. I mean, we came in, wiped out the Indians, the Native Americans, the indigenous people of this land, and then brought the slaves in. Slavery is often talked about as the original sin. I think the whole conquering of the Western Hemisphere and colonization of the world by Europeans, you have to go back to that, and then slavery grew out of that. But we all, as white people, continue to benefit from that, even if we're as liberal as we can be. And I hear you saying that if we're going to call ourselves progressive, we need to own up to that, take responsibility for it, and put our whiteness aside and say, first of all, I'm a human being, I'm a member of the human race, and I'm going to work for social justice wherever I see injustice. That's right. You know, for for those who don't know my publication, don't know me and my husband, don't know me or my husband, the listeners out there, I'm a black woman and my husband is a white man. And in the years that we've been married, uh, we've been together for 19 years. I've just, I, I began to develop this almost unquenchable thirst for understanding whiteness. One thing that occurred to me Early on in our relationship, when I'd be around my husband and his family, his biological family, his mom, his dad, brothers, and so on, it was clear that the conversation was very different around the the dinner table than the conversations that I would have with my biological family. One thing that never came up was race. And so I, I can't, the uncountable times where um, Dick and I at one point belonged to a church, and most of the attendees of the church, a Unitarian Universalist church, were white. And we'd be at a dinner party, and the conversation would float around to all kinds of topics. But when the conversation shifted, if anybody said anything that had anything to do with race, everyone got silent. It's like when E.F. Hutton speaks, everyone got silent and everyone looked at me. And it got, it became comical 
I said, well, I guess I'm the only one who belongs to a race. <laughs> because I, I'm the expert on race. Because obviously you guys know nothing about race. You don't belong to a race. And <laughs> I used to think vanilla ice cream was no flavor. I didn't know vanilla was a flavor. Oh, that's so great. Perfect. All these other flavors, but we're just vanilla. White people is just neutral. We're bland. We're not... You know. Yes, neutral and universal. So you can walk into a boardroom and see every member of the board is white and you feel confident yeah. that they will represent the interests of everyone. But if you walk into a boardroom and they're black, they're only there to represent the interests of black people. <laughs> it's like the black barbershop or the black church as opposed to the white church. <laughs> More on this in a minute with my guest Sharon Kyle, the publisher and editor of L.A. Progressive Magazine. You're listening to the Ageless Wisdom School on KPFK, and we'll be right back. Please help keep independent journalism alive and KPFK Radio strong. Become a Sustainer Circle member of KPFK by pledging at any level. $10, $20, $100 per month, whatever suits you. This is Verdine White of Earth, Wind, and Fire, encouraging you to make your tax-deductible donation today at 818-985-5735 or kpfk.org. My guest today on the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School program on KPFK is Sharon Kyle, and we've been talking about what it means to be a progressive and how... Liberalism is different from progressive, and how very different neoliberalism is. And Sharon, you were talking about the use of language by the right wing, and I've noticed that too. I'm particularly irked, for example, when I hear big business referred to corporations and multinational corporations as job creators. That's an abuse of language when anybody who's had a single class in economics know it's the consumer that creates the demand and therefore the jobs. That's where they got all this trickle-down nonsense. And been 30 years, I guess it's pretty clear nothing's trickling down. No. Nope, nothing is trickling down, and that's the whole neoliberalism outcome. Um, the goal is to concentrate power and wealth in the hands of a few and to pretty much enslave everybody else. But I'm going to give you a definition that I found. Um, it says that, that neoliberalism is a form of capitalism in which the state deregulates the economy, destroys labor unions, decreases taxes on rich and corporations, defunds public goods and services while repressing and policing the poor, particularly people of color and especially black people. So when we talk about defunding public goods and services, notice that we're not talking about defunding the police. That is the only police and what I like to call the security industrial complex, both law enforcement and the military, we're not talking about defunding that. We're defunding every other thing, every other public service, but not police and certainly not the military because we live on a war, a war economy. And that's the goal. 
That's the goals, because we need to control the population as the gap between the haves and the have-nots increasingly widens. And the motive is simply a lust for power and money. That's right. That is the motive. It fascinates me that, you know, I, I think about these uh, imperialistic wars that continue. America has combat troops in 150 countries. That's virtually every country in the world. We have armed troops ready to go. I mean, imagine if that were true of other nations. Yeah. And they're supposed to be protecting our interests. I'm interested. I'm interested in knowing who is the hour. <laughs> which of which which of my interests are being are being protected? I think we should go back to calling the Defense Department the War Department, as they used to. That's right. And the defense budget is the war budget. This is more of that playing around with terms and names and language that you mentioned, and I think that's important to understand that. And even this idea of using liberal and neoliberal to mean exactly the opposite, which is a kind of authoritarianism, even fascism, but a highly centralized government. We're on a radio station here, on a listener-supported free speech radio station. We were talking about the centralization of power that... uh, In most industries, it's like broadcasting or communication media. There's only five or six corporations that own the whole shebang. There's a story I read recently about a hazardous material spill in the upper northwest. I think it was Minnesota or Montana someplace, a small town, a train derailed. And all these toxic chemicals spilled on the ground. And the sheriff went into action and said, call the radio stations. We need to evacuate the people. And there were six radio stations in the area. And every single one of them was being programmed through automation out of New York City. They weren't really local radio stations. They were computers in New York City. That's right. Same similar thing happened with Katrina. They said, you know, contact the local, let warn the people. And just about all the radio stations, because of deregulation, were broadcasting their content from New York or or some other place. Certainly not from New Orleans. All the more reason to support a radio station like KPFK. That's right. Just came out of a fun drive in our appeal to you to. Support this radio station continues. Uh, every time I'm on the radio, I'm going to mention the importance of that. I believe it's true to say that Pacifica is the only national network that is not privately funded, that is listener-supported funded, and we must keep this alive. Yeah, certainly agree with that. I think some people presume that we're all getting paid, you know, that Majority of us are volunteers. I've been involved with uh, Pacifica for 30 years, and I've never taken a nickel. And uh, it's part of what I think creates this family feeling at this radio station, that so many of us are doing it just because we love it, because we know that it's making a difference in the lives of individuals 
in the Los Angeles community and with the internet. You never know. <laughs> you never know who is listening and what kind of impact you're going to have. So, Yeah, I, I think that's sort of an interesting difference between what we see happening with neoliberal, um, liberal versus progressive is that the progressive movement has to have people that are willing to volunteer. So when you talk about what's happening at Pacifica, the vast majority of the broadcasters and those who volunteer to support the fund drives, they're volunteers. They're not paid. My husband and I produced the LA Progressive for 10 years on our own dime. Um, you have to be willing to do that. And, and also, you, you have to, we're trying to change the culture. I tell you, the Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, Occupy, all of these movements that we've seen over the past uh, 10 years or so, give me a great degree of encouragement because those people aren't being paid. Those people that are out there in the streets are not being paid and they still show up. But we have to do much more than just be in the streets. We've got to take over the media. We've got, you know, that's the fourth estate. And if it weren't for Fox and hate radio, we would not see what happened in January 6th probably would never have happened. I think we've been through this before. Uh, I wasn't alive, obviously, in the late 19th century, but we had an era where highly centralized power, monopolies and cartels and trusts were run by men. And I do mean men. There were certainly no women at that point. Who you could call a robber baron. We busted those trusts to a large degree. Even in the 60s and 70s, we broke up the bell system. And phone rates came way down. I used to pay a couple hundred dollars a month for my telephone in the 80s, and, and now it's $9 I pay for my telephone. What can we learn from the lessons of the trust busting of the late 1800s and uh, dispatching these robber barons? Can we do that again? Well, we can, and I learned so much from economics professor Rick Wolf. He often talks about... Um, President um, um, Roosevelt, um, FDR, and the policies that he put in place. And he talks about the tax rate on the wealthy at that time. I think it was like close to 90 percent. So when we complain about 37 percent or wh whatever it is now, um, that's nothing compared to what it was. But w what he says about Roosevelt is that Roosevelt sort of let the steam off because the socialist movement and many other, the regressive movement actually, during the um, post-depression and during the early years of Roosevelt, it was clear that this country was going to collapse. If you look at, I don't know if anyone has ever looked at images of the Hoovervilles all across the nation. We look at the homeless situation today and it's just staggering. But look at how it was back then, all on the White House lawn. There were tents and shacks, and this was, oh, oh my gosh, it was, it was across the nation. And Roosevelt knew that drastic measures had to be made, but not only did he know it, the impacted communities were pressing on him nonstop. And he went to the wealthy, and he, he said, he went to the wealthy, and he said, unless we make a change, we're going to lose this country. And so 
he made changes. He, he created the New Deal, but he really didn't go far enough, which is why we are where we are today, because he didn't change the structure. Marjorie Kelly is a wonderful author who wrote about the divine rights of capital. And we treat capital today as if it were a deity. We have got to disempower that, return the power to the people. Until we do that, we're going to continue to go through this cycle. We talk about free markets. We actually don't even have free markets. The, the market is rigged and they are supported by government contract. The problems and the corruption go on and on. But there are mechanisms that we can use to change this, to have this country work on our behalf the way it's supposed to. Sharon, I wonder if you have any thoughts about binary thinking. Mm -hmm. This bifurcation that happens, especially in the presence of stress and anxiety, where people see things as this or that, all or nothing. I think it's one reason that we have this so-called polarization and the idea that if you do not support children in cages at the border, then you must be for completely open borders. Absolutely. And cancel culture as well. You know, if you don't agree with me on all points, I'm shutting you down. Well, what do we do about binary thinking? How do you, how do we encourage people to consider that there's always a third option or a fourth possibility, a fifth way of looking at things, the shades of gray or the rainbows, better said, in between all of this or all of that, uh, to shake people out of this reactionary belief that it's everything or nothing. Well, I, it's one of the reasons I love my, my Tuvalu metaphor is that if we say that the people in Tuvalu are lying and we're just not going to do anything about it, we're probably setting ourselves up. So, you know, if we say we don't believe science, we don't believe in climate control. I think that what we can do about this is to model the kind of behavior. If more and more of the progressives model the kind of behavior that they want to see. If we can engage in healthy discourse, it could be robust. It could be that you and I have some differences of opinion, but we know how to talk to each other about those differences and still stay on target to fight for the things that we both agree should be fought for. I think that that takes us a lot further than entering into these binary um, arguments that get us nowhere. Yeah, I also think that the reason a program like this and the Aware Show and Intervision on a progressive radio station like KPFK is important because we can continue to march and we will continue to march. We can demonstrate, protest, petition the government for redress of our grievances. We can vote, although from a limited menu, but we'll never be able to match the money that big corporations and special interests are able to use to basically purchase a congressperson. And they come pretty cheap. A couple of thousand dollars, you can get a vote. But we don't have the millions that the big corporations have. So speaking for a lot of people who share this frustration, I've been marching all my life. I've been protesting and trying to organize the union. 
I want to work against climate change to educate people. But it seems to me that it needs to go beyond simply education to a quality of ethics and morality that brings us full circle to what is a progressive. Why do I care? Sharon, what burns in your heart and soul that causes you to spend as much time and energy doing the LA Progressive and all the other work that you do, what is that about? How can people who may be on the the precipice, they may have a sense of that, but they're resisting allowing it to take them over. So I think that um, education does play a role in it. And the education that I'm talking about is understanding the nature of this country. For 23, well, almost 23 years, a, a little uh, less than 23 years, I worked for NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And um, at some point in my life, I was a single parent, and it was the salary that I made at NASA that helped me to raise my two children. But after my daughter was already a practicing attorney, I went on um, and went to law school and became a law professor and did a lot of other things. But what I saw at NASA was a ton of brilliant people. Um, at the time when I worked at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, when I was hired there, they had over 8,000 employees. And most of those employees were brilliant. Um, they were um, they were future looking. But at the same time, there were 8,000 people in the Altadena, Pasadena area, which is where JPO was uh, located and is located. And they had less than 200 people there that were black. And it was the same situation with the Latinx community. And when I see a situation like that, something tells me that there's something very wrong here that the leadership doesn't seem to be aware of. And I remember sitting in a conference room, everyone, maybe there were 50 people there and every person was white except for me. And I was at the time working on the Mars Pathfinder project. And I thought to myself, I love being with these people. I love doing the work that we do here. But eventually we're talking about landing on another planet and we're going to take this sickness with us um, because it's, it's completely unaddressed. So that's what led me to this move towards social justice, both looking at the future of humankind and how unless we address it, we're, we're not it, we're just going to continue it. The other thing is in understanding the founding of this nation. We talk about the American Revolution as if it were actually a revolution. But when you look at the founders or the, the founding fathers, and I'm using air quotes here because we're on the radio, the founding fathers were all very wealthy white men. They were landowning men, and the actual culture of the newly born United States was not radically different than the culture of the colonies for people of color, for the indigenous, for the black slaves, for the women. Culture didn't change. It was no revolution for them. When the founding fathers established the pecking order, six to seven percent of the people in the United States at that time had the right to vote. 93% had no rights. A, a substantial number of the population, especially in the South, there were times when South Carolina and Virginia almost had half their population black. These people, not only could they not vote, they couldn't keep the, their children. They, as soon as a child was born, it belonged to someone else. Someone else had the right to say, I'm going to cut off your ear or cut off your foot. So um, we need to have a reckoning with what is this country really about? 
we keep talking about, well, the founding fathers didn't intend this and the founding fathers didn't intend that. What we saw in January 6th is a lot like what the founding fathers liked. So like, I've kind of veered off and I don't know if I've answered your question and I don't know if we've extended beyond the time that we should be talking, but that's kind of uh, what led me and being a mom, what keeps me working every single day is I want my children to be safe and I pay taxes and damn it, I think that I should have the right to say, police do not have the right to do what they have done to people of color. It's just, it's just on, it's just, it's just maddening. See, I think consciousness is love, but to use that word brings up for most people an emotion around relationships. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true. Technically, love is not an emotion because it brings up so many different emotions. But to think of consciousness as capital L love, carrying with it a degree of morality, a moral authority, and a set of ethics that people can taste but may be afraid to fully receive or commit to. And I'd like to encourage people listening to us now to reflect on what that means and to ask ourselves, are we willing to open our hearts and our souls and explore this elevated, accelerated, (laughs) amplified level of ethics and morality that gives us no choice but to do what we do and make the world a better place because that's what we're for. Yes, that's what I believe. I do believe that that is what we're for. And if, if we're, we're, all, we're all granted a certain number of years, and I think that's why we're here. Sharon, Kyle, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure meeting you and having this discussion today. How can folks find out more about the LA Progressive? You just go to laprogressive.com and that's our that's our site. We publish every day. We publish anywhere between ten and fifteen articles a day. Um, we've been publishing more during the pandemic because uh, my husband and I uh, don't leave the house and haven't in a year. So uh, we're in our garage. That's where we publish from. We have hundreds of very gifted, intelligent, deep thinking authors that uh, provide us with content and some of the content we write as well. Some of the content we have is only carried by the LA Progressive. So um, we encourage readers um, doing a deep dive as I have in LA Progressive is really what has educated me more than anything else. LAProgressive.com. Sharon Kyle, our guest today on the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. Thank you, Sharon. Have a wonderful uh, rest of your day. And, uh, Gosh, one of these days, COVID will be in the rearview mirror and we'll be able to come out and meet each other. That would be wonderful. And toast to uh, better times. That would be wonderful, Michael. Thank you again for having me. Look forward to it. Thanks for listening to The Ageless Wisdom today. We're here every Tuesday at 1 o'clock. Hope you make it a habit, either by radio or streaming through the Internet at kpfk.org. We're also podcast and available on all podcast platforms. And the most current program is streaming at the Ageless Wisdom 
michaelbenner.com. Find out more about me and what I do at michaelbenner.com. And as always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. This is Michael Benner. You're listening to KPFK. This is KPFK.